Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time at WGN. Yeah, we started here in the 90s. I produced Bob Collins and Roy Leonard. And I produced Spike and Cochran. So we spent our 20s as wing women for each other. And it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and we stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. And we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that intrigue us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average. We're not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we already have. So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and look. Apparently, new research from the University of Michigan suggests parents should think twice before pressuring picky eaters in their households. It can cause tension during mealtime and cause a parent-child conflict. Okay, but the same study, so I, I got to take a little issue with this because the same study suggested we stop saying picky and start saying selective in order to protect the children. Oh. Now, dude, a picky eater is a picky eater. Yeah, word. And it is the worst when you're a parent. Yes. It's honestly, meal planning is the single biggest stressor in my house. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And uh, for years and years, I had two meals. I, I had this. I had a meal for the kids mm-hmm. of chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. With ranch? No. Oh, that's your sister. I wish my kids liked ranch. My God. It was mustard or ketchup and that was it. Okay. And it couldn't touch. I couldn't like put it on the chicken nugget. It had to be separated and not touching. You know, everything that you can possibly imagine, it it happened in my house. And also, do you remember those, the, we just got rid of these, the plates with separate compartments. Yes. So we had never, never touched. Absolutely. Right. Yes. So, so at a certain point, I think it was around five years old. I was like, enough. I'm not a short order cook. And they need to start eating what we're eating, okay? Now, Doug was coming home later, so in the beginning, it was also a factor of they just couldn't wait until he got home to eat. So we had to have an earlier dinner before he came home. So, But as they got older, it... They got they could be extended and they they weren't ravenous by mm-hmm. you know six thirty seven o'clock. So do you have food struggles in your house? Well, you know, as is often true with us, um, I'm going to explain that we have very different households. Yes, um, I'm a lousy cook, so Clark does the cooking. Um, and you make a mean mac and cheese though, Anne. Oh yes, yeah, so good, <laughs> so good. Um, so when the kids were babies, I could manage fine because. Unlike the moms who who made their own baby food, I could just buy the packages. Oh yeah, I did that. Too. Yeah, and give it. And and I can say that Sophie did not like the green beans. She did not like the peas as much as she liked the squash or the or the um, sweet potatoes. And at one point, I brought her to my mom's house, and my mom was like, "Your child is orange." They said that about Kate. Yeah, yeah. Because she just wanted uh, sweet potatoes or um, what was the other one? It was the uh, carrots and squash. And squash, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, they were actually she. Her skin was orange because she was eating so much orange colored yeah. food. And Kate had red hair, so yeah. it was really a, <laughs> a, a stunning a look. Yes, yes, it was really cute. Um, but Clark came up with the idea. Um, we would again, excellent parenting. We'd put them in front of the TV. 
And then when they were looking at the TV, we put a bowl of, of cucumbers or peppers next to them. And then without even looking, they just eat the, the raw vegetables. <sighs> and so then they became aware of it or they became used to it. So every, every night now they get cukes and peps. They, so every they, night. they still like them. Yeah. See, that's so funny because all the things that they, when, you know, when they graduate from like the um, little pureed food right. to sitting in the high chair and feeding themselves. I mean, Kate, they, they ate every vegetable, every fruit, avocado, like everything. I would cut it, dice it up on them, and they would go to town and eat it. Not no, anymore? No. No. <laughs> I, and I remind them about it, and they, they're like, what? No, I didn't. I'm like, yes, you did. No. I'm, I tried to find pictures in our photo albums to see like <laughs> at mealtime of the mess they made, but they, they would see that you actually did put that in your mouth, and I know you ate it, and right, you right. liked it. Yes. Yes. So I... Uh, thought we should bring in somebody to talk about food struggles. So we're going to welcome in Dr. Laura Jana, a pediatrician, educator, and author of a book called, I love this title, Food Fights, Winning the Nutritional Challenges of Parenthood Armed with Insight, Humor, and a Bottle of Ketchup. (laughs) She currently serves as an associate research professor at Penn State and has been seen on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and CNN. Welcome, Dr. Jana. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you and and to listen to your um, conversation, because if nothing else, you have some very common nutritional challenges of parenthood that you both have been dealing with. Yay! That makes me feel normal. (laughs) You're not alone, right? (laughs) The struggle is real for all of us, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and myself included. You know, I have three kids. I had three in three and a half years, Um, and, you know, Every family is different. My husband and I met in medical school. We were both in training when we had our kids. So we were doing the juggle the kids. Did you feed them yet? What's quick, easy sorts of, of challenges as well. So I'm very sympathetic as well as having heard your sort of plate before. <laughs> what do you think about the new research out of the University of Michigan about picking your battles? Well, you know, clearly, um, having written a book called Food Fights, if you even flip a few pages into the book, you'll find that my co-author and I, both parents and pediatricians, um, that's our philo- that was it. That's always been our philosophy, which is it's not about food fights. It's trying to avoid food fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it fits with my big picture view and approach. Um, I do like to say, you know, some of these studies where people say, okay, this sounds sort of obvious or, yeah, right, like that's going to happen they're really valuable because they really do help us kind of where the rubber meets the road, find out what actually happens versus what we would like to happen or what we say happens in our homes. Uh-huh. I am not a believer of putting undue pressure on getting kids to eat, right? Because I do know that that tends to backfire. At the same time, I also very much recognize that what often happens is in trying to take off the pressure, people do chicken nuggets for dinner and ice cream if you eat your chicken nuggets. So so again, I look for balance and I try to help parents figure out strategies to make that happen because otherwise it sounds somewhat unrealistic or idealistic. In one of your blog posts, uh, you, you mentioned sort of some strategies and, and, you know, your number one was don't fight over food and just be calm and consistent. So how would you, if you've got a kid, you know, I have uh, one child who's a big fan of salami sandwiches. She will not eat. Me too. Yeah. She won't eat a lot of what we're eating and often we capitulate. What's a strategy to get that kid to eat um, anything? <laughs> A turkey yeah, sandwich? Other than salami sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things where you can approach that from a couple of different directions, let's say. The first is, you know, until your kids, um, who are all a bit younger than mine, have their driver's licenses and their own cash or credit cards, 
you do have control in the sense that it's what you buy and what's in the refrigerator. Correct. And that is somewhat absolute control. Now, once kids get to be school age and they're out with their friends, they get exposed to a wider range of foods. There's that. There's also um, the, you know, pick your battles. And if it's salami, which I tend not to serve to my kids, and unfortunately, they just never really got that into it. I blame um, my husband, but, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all have one of those. Right? <laughs> um, but that's where also, you know, I was I was laughing at the comment about sitting children in front of the television, which we know encourages kids to eat more, but sticking the carrots and cucumbers and bell peppers <laughs> under their hands instead of the chips and the soda and things. Um, but you know, exposure to new and healthy foods is really important. And so rather than just focusing on salami as the center of all food evils, mm-hmm. right, it would be the, but here's this other array of foods. You can, you know, you can have that, but you can only have you know, so much of it and then everything else needs to be something else at the meal. And trying with the consistency of this is what we have to eat and, and not becoming the short order cook, which is another thing that um, I reference in the Food Fights book, which is, you know, I owned, in addition to being a pediatrician, I owned an educational child care center with nearly 200 kids in it for almost 10 years. And here's what I found. The difference between home and child care, if, if the food in the child care is, is, you know, thought through well, is kids don't expect a short order cook in child care so they eat what they're served. Yes. At home, they know that you're going to give in, right, and that you have the ability to go walk over to the refrigerator and make them their mac and cheese or their, you know, chicken nuggets. And all of a sudden, you know, I had parents from all around Omaha <laughs> bringing their kids to my child care center because their kids would eat things they would never eat at home. It was sort of the no-nonsense, no alternative. This is just the way it is. Let's sit down and eat together. But think, but think about it. Like, my daughter went to camp last year for a week, and I really wondered how food was going to go. And she came home, and she said, I tried lasagna rolls and this and that. And I was like, who are you? What? On, on the other <laughs> hand, my daughter went, and I picked her up, and I said, what did you eat? And she said, lettuce. <laughs> well, I can think of worse things, but, th- but that's, that's all, all she, she ate. ate all week was lettuce. <laughs> So. Or if you go to a, a friend's house, a nutritional value, but not harmful. <laughs> but when you know that that um, that's all you're going to have, you you know they are forced to make a decision, and so I'm sure that that's why Kate ate stuff that there's no way in hell she would be eating if I made it and set it down at the dinner table. I think that's sure. why. And, and you know what? You both are you both are hitting on a really sort of a fundamental parenting challenge in general, which is at some point. Our kids leave our houses and they have to go and make their own food choices for themselves and, and, you know, sort of do this on their own. And they're not always going to get it right. You know, I have three kids and one of them, I swear, exists to test me on everything I tell people that they should do with their kids. (laughs) He is meat and potatoes, sort of, you know, he's an elite athlete who I sometimes wonder, does he not make the connection between what you put in your body and your performance, right? And he's 20 now. So it, it doesn't always work. But the idea is, I know full well, he's off in college. He gets to choose. And when I went to visit him and he took me to this sort of salad bar, you could pick your quinoa and your kale and then what toppings you wanted. I went, again, who is this child? But hallelujah, it worked. Huh. Right? He wasn't just eating chicken nuggets and pizza, which had always been his preferred food. So I have a 12 and 10 year old and so does Anne. And um, for in my family, the only veggies that they will eat are carrots or broccoli. Is there like a magic number of how many times you introduce? Like I, I always at dinner have a protein and a vegetable and a starch or something like that. I try to balance out the plate and I always try to have one thing on the plate that I know they're going to eat. 
Okay. But is there a magic number to how many, like, I don't want to eat broccoli every day. Also, we had a, a listener who said that he was given advice that it the magic number is 10. You have to try 10 times and that, that and then by the 10th time, the kid... Oh, sure. So you're referencing, and there it, there are some studies out there that suggest that it can take you know, 8 to 10 times being exposed to a new food before children accept it or like it. Okay. Um, now, I don't use that as a magic number, but rather as a concept. Okay. Not everybody likes everything right out of the gate. Right. Adults included. And quite honestly, the other thing that's helpful is to think of yourself as an adult. I've always said, listen, I love carrots when they're raw. I hate them cooked. That's my kids. Right? And I always have. So so we have to remember that our kids are not destined to like everything if we get this right. Right. So there's that first step. Second is, you know, I find and, and 10 and 12 are great ages for this, but you can start much younger for people who have younger kids where if they're hands-on involved in something, think of like a project that they get excited and you get to go do something. This is where I do things like, I'm a big fan of gardening. Right? Mm-hmm. You can do different kinds of gardens, right? Some kids say, no way, I'm not interested. But, you know, we, you can even do a pizza garden. Right? Where you, a let's what? Try to grow a tomato, right? Oh. Grow some herbs. And your kids can be involved in it, and then they can make it, and then they can serve it when dad comes home, if that's the scenario, or they can surprise you with it. All of a sudden, kids who have a vested interest in these things are far more likely to try it, you know, take pride in the ownership that they did it, um, but it's exposure, and they don't have to like it. And my example from my family is, you know, here at the child care center I owned, we put in a 60-foot garden, and I got all the kids starting, you know, age two, were out there doing it. So we had cucumbers coming out of our ears. Uh-huh. I am not a great gardener. It just was very lucky. <laughs> but, That's but a good vegetable so to make. Cucumbers that I came home, and my kids, you know, they were about your kid's age at the time, but they like to Google things. So we Googled, we were like, we need cucumber recipes. You can only eat so many plain cucumbers with ranch dressing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and found like 10. And we stuck with three of them we loved. Same thing. I never liked zucchini, but we found zucchini chips. Who knew that if you dip them in milk with some Parmesan and you bake them, if you slice them really thin, they turn into chips that my kids devoured. All three never liked zucchini. So that's the sort of approach I would take in terms of engaging kids as well so that the 10 exposures isn't quite so daunting. I've tried all those. I tried. I've even had them like slicing to make the salad or to cut the vegetables, like be my sous chef, thinking that if, if they were part of the process that they would, and it didn't but um, we grew chives, and my older one wanted to try them because, of course, they're kind of cool to look at. Uh-huh. And now she's got a total savory pet. Like, she eats everything. And I wonder if that was sort of a tipping point for her. It, it sure can be. And, you know, pick up on the chives thing. You know, we would walk into the store, and, and we saw um, kohlrabi. And I had no idea what you do with a kohlrabi, right? The only time I'd ever seen it was in, like, the Eating the Alphabet book. Mm-hmm. And so we had to ask, what do you do with kohlrabi? All three of my kids, again, they love kohlrabi. I mean, they eat it like it's a carrot stick. You know, you peel off the outer layer and things. Um, But it's that sort of finding those things, and it's not going to be all of them. But to the point um, about, you know, fine, you try all these things and they don't work, I often get asked about, well, what about when you hide vegetables, right? You blend them into things. And the way I like to look at that is, you know, I don't want it to be that every parent says, I'm just going to blend it all into the spaghetti sauce. I'm never going to worry about any of the rest of it ever again. I'm not going to expose them to new foods. We're not going to go to the produce aisle together. Um, At the same time, if you serve your child a piece of bread, do you feel compelled, like that it's dishonest if you don't tell them that it contains flour and salt and egg and, and things? No, you don't have to tell them everything that's in there. And if they like it, they're getting exposed, plus they're getting some of the 
nutrients. So I say do both. If you have a child who's really resistant and you're trying not to fight over it, it may be a matter of time. At the same time, you can find things. I, I have a zucchini pineapple bread that my kids think is cake, right? I mean, they love it. The pineapple chunks really help with it, but it is so loaded with zucchini um, that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised anything else even fits in there. So that's the kind of stuff I also suggest, which is you don't have to say, okay, now this one's got lots of zucchini in it, and I mix some other things in there, and I know you don't like zucchini, but why don't you try it? Right. Because you're basically just, you know, getting them to say they don't like it before they even put it in their mouth. Yeah, yeah. I would. I have no problem not not disclosing what's in it. I tried to do a <laughs> zucchini bread uh, with chocolate chips and it uh, didn't go over either. Maybe it was a rest. Maybe my maybe I'm just a bad cook <laughs> or baker. I don't know. But I've tried to do the sneak it in and somehow they suss it out. My kids don't like sauces. Everything oh. has to be super plain. No flavor. Still, that's hard. Yeah. And that's. That's one that you sort of ease into. I mean, once kids are older, it's, it's great for young parents. It's easy to say. I mean, parents of very young children say, listen, you know, what's, what was interesting for me, my husband's parents are from India. So my kids, when they were babies, were exposed to a lot of the Indian seasoning, uh-huh. which also includes onions and lemon and stronger flavors that we tend to avoid, um, you know, especially sort of American diet for babies. And my, my daughter at age one would suck on a lemon and eat raw onions, right? Mm. So part of that's early exposure, but all hope is not lost. If you have a 10 or a 12-year-old who eats a relatively bland diet, it's ongoing sort of exposure, sort of, you know, some extra seasoning. And that, this is where playing with herbs, you know, this is some kids love herb gardens. And even with chives, you say, what can you do with chives? Well, I grew up, you know what you do with chives? You put them on tomatoes and ate them. And so now maybe you have a kid who says, okay, I'm going to figure out something to do with chives. And oftentimes you can find vegetable recipes that you put chives on. So well, that's where you, you play with it. Again, this is the making fun of food instead of fighting the battles over it. The irony of, of all of this is that my kids love watching the Food Network and Chop Jr. and everything else. And they, oh, look at what they're doing here. But if, if in practice and we set it on the table, they wouldn't eat it. That's what I don't understand. How can you be... How can you watch these shows but then not want to eat the whatever it is that they made? Isn't that sure. strange? And again, there's part of this is you're, it sounds like you're doing the right things is also hang in there. I'd like to think that you're eating and trying new things as well because, again, the best thing you can do is eat by example. It's, it's you know, no part of parenthood does well if you do the do as I say and not as I do. Right. I had parents where mom drank a Pepsi and had some, had some chocolate cake for breakfast and yelled at her kids who were very vegetable resistant as well. Um, so, so again, it's the eat by example, stick with it, try to find something, but, and, but also taking the specific pressure over you need to like this, right? It's the, well, okay, well, let's see if we can find something else we like or what do you like? If you like ranch dressing, let's see what we can do with ranch dressing. That is, by the way, why I put ketchup on the title of you know, the subtitle of the Food Fights book, which is there was so much sort of this purest approach to nutrition, you know, coming from the pediatric and nutrition world, right? And while people debate the merits or the um, problems with ketchup, you know, whether it's got too much sugar in it and all these other things, the reality is that sometimes kids eat things with ketchup on it that they don't otherwise. Yes. And that the amount of ketchup may be minimal compared to the value of you put ketchup. You know, and I, I joke, but I, I grew up in Wisconsin and um, and didn't eat, like to eat quite a few vegetables when I was a kid. Um, I would put A1 sauce. Again, it was Wisconsin, so steak was the biggest yes. thing, and we all had A1 sauce on our steak. I would put A1 sauce on my Brussels sprouts and declare that they tasted like steak. 
Uh, That's hilarious. I mean, that's what I have in my mind with all of this, which is the go with what your kids like, engage them, see what they can find, but you're not going to be angry about it. And if they, and and the other thing I like, and I emphasize this in food fights is this idea of, of a no thank you bite. You try something, please give it a real chance. But if you don't like it, no pressure, right? That's partly how you can take the pressure off, which is no pressure. I'm not going to force feed you this food, especially once kids get older, force feeding really, you know, after about the age of two, force feeding really kind of backfires. Yeah. Um, but it lets them do it and taste it and say, no, but seriously, give it a try, right? I want you to take it seriously, but I'm not going to bug you about it. We'll just keep trying other things. Then you make it clear that you're just going to keep at it. And you call it the no thank you, the no thank you bite. So they take the bite and then they can say no thank you. Right. And that is a very specific way when people say, right, you know, especially the the study you started with, you know, this University of Michigan study saying don't put pressure on at mealtime. Well, here's the problem. That's easy to say. But the whole philosophy behind food fights there were, you know, was there were a lot of nutrition books on the market when, and it's already in its second edition now. But when we wrote that, but there weren't the books that say, okay, good, we all know how much calcium our kids need, and we all know how many vegetables, all these things to do. How do we get them to do it? So it, it factors in the sort of parenting skills and the behavior and development and some tips and sort of strategies. But the, the one where you say, don't, you know, take the pressure off, and you say, how do you do that when you're telling me that they need to have all, this, you know, all these vegetables and have all these healthy habits and they're not doing it? That's where the pressure comes in. No thank you bite seems to work really well, especially when you've got kids who are so used to being told and, you know, there's all the negotiations that can go into if you eat three bites, you can have ice cream for dessert. Um, That's never happened in our house. And the pressure. Oh, Oh, it happens in most, I mean, lots of houses. Oh, I did. You are not alone. I did. I did do that. And then I I took the the after dinner treat. I took it away. And so now we don't, we would have like an afternoon treat. So all day they would have, if they had a treat, it would be after school and not tied to your success of how much you ate at dinner. And so there was nothing after dinner. That's a really good idea. And, you know, I found in my family what then happens we never really got in the routine, probably because it was always so late when we were feeding our kids. We didn't have time. Um, but we never really got into that after-dinner treat that a lot of people have as a very set routine. But the trick is exactly what you just said, which is decoupling them, right? Not having one be conditional on the other yes. so that you can get the healthy eating habits and you move it separate from, you know, that, that if you eat two more bites. And then everybody's focusing on every bite. And that is pressure at the dinner table. I remember being a kid and I did not like meat and my parents insisted also we didn't have a lot of money so if there was protein you know we were eating it yeah and i remember i ate a baked potato and then i put my chicken in the baked potato the empty baked potato and turned it upside down so i could try and hide it (laughs) (laughs) and my dad made me sit at the table until i would eat the chicken and and i do remember i mean clearly i remember i had that happen to me too yeah so clearly the lights would practically be off in the kitchen (laughs) my mom had cleaned up and i'd still be sitting there like sweeping around you not eating those peas yeah so you don't want to do that but on the other hand you know i don't want a kid who eats only noodles or salami sandwiches one thing you mentioned in another blog post was the out of sight out of mind explain that sort of uh philosophy or strategy Sure. And, you know, it's, it, it's sort of in reference to what I, what I mentioned earlier, which is the, if you don't keep it around, mm-hmm. it's less likely that kids are going to want it. I mean, now, fine, if your child's declared that salami is their favorite food in the whole world and it's not in the refrigerator, they're going to notice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we found things like candy or cookies or chips or things that, you know, I personally, it took me a lot of years, learned to have in the house without eating them all. Right. I mean, like the self-control kind of, 
kicked in, but took a lot of years to get there. But if they were sitting on the shelf, the kids ate them, right? right? They could find them and they could eat them, um, whereas they don't, they weren't at a position where they would be going out and buying them themselves. So out of sight, out of mind, you know, if you think about it from a young child's standpoint, right, and, and you can introduce this concept really early, you know, we, we know that if a two-year-old really wants something, it's kind of nice if you just don't let them see it in the first place because they forget about it. Yeah. Um, but if they have it and you take it away from them, that makes them very upset. That still holds true as we get older. I mean, listen, all the grocery stores know this. That's why they strategically place things at certain points, you know, at the end cap, at a certain level. You you pay more if your food is on, you know, the checkout lane counter. I mean, like the little checkout lane or uh-huh. it's at a certain point. An end cap. Yeah. Because it's, it, yeah, the end cap or a certain height, like which shelves are more sort of high High prop, you know, high rent district. Yeah. Um, because people know that the more it's in your line of sight, the more you're going to be likely to get it. And people have done a lot of really interesting studies around that as well. You know, the head of food for the entire Google company, right, worldwide, he, they did studies like where they put water versus soda in their coolers at Google offices around the world. Really? And they found that by simply putting water in the line of sight and the sodas or whatever, you know, sugary drinks they were talking about at a lower level that you had to sort of open the door and scrouch down to, to get it, they decreased soda consumption and sugary drink consumption by a huge percentage just by whether it was sort of in the line of sight and, and more easily accessible. So that's what out of sight, out of mind is, is make it easy on yourself for the things where if you just don't have them around and go, oh, yeah, no, we ran out of it, um, didn't, get, didn't remember to pick any up it's much easier to sort of avoid a battle over it than if they're holding it and you're wrestling it away from them once you've already gotten in the house. So talking about food marketing, and, and uh, I can attest to this, that when I take the kids to the grocery store, I always spend about $20 more because they see something that they latch on to. And it's not something I would pick up at all. You also talked in one of your blogs about the legislation to uh, prevent fast food outlets uh, from including toys, like, you know, like the Happy Meal or whatever. Um, is that something else? Should we be concerned about how much the marketing is affecting our kids and, and how much fast food is trying to entice our kids? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, in the sort of the big picture, um, there's certainly this sort of individual parenting role that we stand to play. And it's a really big one in helping teach our kids healthy habits. And we really are their first and most important teachers on a whole lot of fronts. At the same time, it's really worth re- um, recognizing that there are some forces much bigger than us um, that in some cases are working against us. And, and certainly the marketing of unhealthy foods to children is of significant concern. The other thing is, you know, and if, if you look at in, in food fights, you know, we have these 10 overarching strategies and we've talked about a couple of them, you know, out of sight, out of mind and eat by example. Um, if you if you look at what we're really trying to do here and then you say, okay, now you've got somebody else marketing these things to our children, that becomes a really big problem. That is where we talk about keeping food for food's sake. And here's the problem. If food is associated with a cute toy, it's the toy the kids want, so they then learn to love. It's it's sort of a conditioned response, right? Right. You want the food because you want the toy. And I remember that very clearly as a kid. I knew which box of cereal I wanted because I knew what toys I wanted. Sure. And so all this warm feeling about cute characters and and all um, can be really problematic, starting at a very young age for children because it gets them to want and like foods that are, for the most part, unhealthy. You see a bit of a movement now where people try that, where you know there was a study done where they cut um, whatever vegetable it was or apple slices or something in the shape of French fries, 
and put them in French fries shaped containers. Really? And they did it at a school and they found a huge increase in the, the number of kids who were eating them oh because my. they looked like French fries and they were in a container like French fries. That's ridiculous. It, really? It probably triggers some sort of hormone or some <laughs> sort of, when you see something that you have a positive identification with, right? So then. You can't tell me that you both don't have that. Right? Of I mean, course, things that make you trigger that warm, that warm feeling. My mom used to make me chocolate cake, or I used to. I mean, like, there's lots of that. What we try to do now, now that we know the implications and how you know healthy eating starts really early, but what happens, you know, young doesn't stay in early childhood. It extends. So you know, with the obesity prevention, healthy and eating and, and nutrition stuff, we know it starts early, and the goal would be the have fun with food, but it's for food's sake, and you don't have to link it up with like you know everything else, all the toys or the games or the maternal love and everything else. It's the, it's something fun that we do together and it's an enjoyable thing. And it's because you want them to be healthy. So create some positive memories or experiences around food so that they take that with them when they fly the, the nest. Sure. And, you know, for your children's age, which also, you know, this is about the age that I started with my three kids where we said, you each get to make a meal at night. Uh-huh. Right? And my husband's like, can we please just not do this? Because we, we also told them they had to clean the house. Oh, good Lord. Said, can we please just hire somebody to clean the house? I said, no, because they need to learn. Yep. But what we then did was we said, oh, we'll help you. You know, right. if you like whatever it is, you get to pick it out. Help, we'll help you find recipes or tell you what we think of this. And we'll go grocery shopping together. And it actually, for what seemed like a punishment to my kids at the time, became something that was a really, I mean, it was a fun shared experience. They come back from college now and they'll still do. They will go, we know which recipes were their favorite, right? Yeah. And so we'll say, good, you want to make that, right? Go ahead and make that. You were good at that. But that was a, and, and they remember it as a shared experience. Right. As my, opposed to a punishment. My daughter, um, because she does watch those channels, uh, cooking channels and stuff, she sees videos, uh, Tasty, I forget what some of the other um, cooking little snippets that she watched. And she's like, Mom, can I make this fried chicken thing? And I was like, uh, oh, okay. Well, she it was a buttermilk um, marinated chicken breast and then rolled in panko crumbs and whatever. And she made it. And my son goes... I feel like I'm at a restaurant. This is the best chicken I've ever had. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. I mean, granted, right. it was fried. I mean, that we don't have. It was a victory. I'm like, Kate, we're not always going to be making fried chicken. But once in a while, totally. You know, normally we grill the chicken, but she made it. Sure. And she was so excited. She And then she went on and um, wanted to make something, some rosemary steak. Wow. That she yeah. did in the uh, cast iron pan. And so. It's those little wins. I mean, it's not a vegetable. It's still... <laughs> no, but, but here's what you do with that, because this is exactly... I mean, you're making such a good point, because that's exactly what I'm talking about on a practical level is, first of all, you pay as much for a little package of rosemary at the grocery store as you do for a rosemary plant. Yeah. So you get a little rosemary plant, and then you say, what can we do with rosemary? And then you'd say, okay, rosemary steak, right? What goes with rosemary steak? Like, let's pretend it's a restaurant. Yeah. What would you serve with it? And, you know, that's where maybe asparagus comes in because people serve that with, you know, or or green beans. That's where you start to build on that. Same thing with the fried chicken, which we discussed a lot in our house because I try not to do fried foods. But did you know you can practically do the same thing and bake it? Yeah. It turns out almost the same. So then you start teaching them, see, this is the ultimate goal, right? It's very easy to get buried in the details of it. Is you want them to have strategies, how to approach food, how to think of it. What are the, you know, as my son would put it, some lesser of two evils when you're at a restaurant and there's not that much healthy food on the menu. Right. 
the idea of how do you convert something that's fried in the recipe, but could you try to bake it and see if it turns out, even if it's almost as good, but way healthier, now your kids learn strategies. I convert recipes all the time now, and my kids do as well, from, from fried to baked. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Laura Jana, the author of Food Fights, Winning the Nutritional Challenges of Parenthood, Armed with Insight, Humor, and a Bottle of Ketchup. Or a Bottle of Wine. <laughs> Mustard, ranch dressing, soy sauce, anything. If you need to dip it, your carrots in that, that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, that part of the subtitle didn't make it in, you know, as the American Academy of Pediatrics had to approve it. The the wine part got left out. (laughs) I wonder why. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, doctor. Hey, my pleasure. Great talking with you. Take care. So, you know, in addition to all this is we have busy lives and that's what that's the, another thing that's just so hard is that having a family meal or having a a real hot meal every night is so hard in my house because we're busy. We're running off to baseball or soccer or whatever. You know, and for us, it's music, essentially. But um, we do try to sit at the dinner table when we're all home. Uh Um, Consistently, we do. And and sometimes, I mean, Sophie eats everything, so that works out. And sometimes it is a salami sandwich for Hannah. Um, But, and sometimes when Clark's out of town, I'll do like frozen orange chicken uh-huh. and make it. And we have breakfast for dinner when Doug's traveling. Oh, that's awesome. My kids love breakfast for dinner. So is it like pancakes? Because they don't do eggs, right? No, they they will do eggs, but um, it has to have pancakes too or bacon. We I'll do bacon. We bake bacon. Okay. So there's um, it just it's out of sorts because it's. Like, wait, it's nighttime. Why are we eating? And they think that's fun. Super special. Yeah. Yeah. So, And it's only when dad's gone. Right. Gotcha. So apparently, when it comes to picky eaters, we have to pick our battles. Absolutely. And um, try, try again. Yes. And I can say, too, that, you know, uh, my husband was a picky eater who now eats everything. So they they grow out of it, I think. I think I feel like I I try a lot more foods than than um, I did when I was a kid. So and I've. I've I've expanded I've, ex- I've expanded my bottom. <laughs> I've done that too. But I mean I've I've expanded my interest in the types of foods that I'll try. Yeah. I, my mom would never eat sushi. Oh my god. No right. way. Um my kids are going to sushi restaurants and trying stuff. So they might not eat more than one piece, but they're trying it. Pot stickers, all that stuff. So. No thank you bite. I think yep. that's a great idea. That's a great tip. Yep. So I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnson. Thanks for listening. We make it look easy.